Thank you and welcome everyone to our next panel where under the broad umbrella of digital currency we'll be discussing civil liberties. My name is Rachel Siegel and I'm an economics reporter covering the Federal Reserve at the Washington Post. I'll mostly be trying to stay out of the way so that our panelists can take the floor and I've already learned so much from them and know that we have a lot of ground to cover in the next 45 minutes on issues ranging from personal privacy, the right to that privacy, government surveillance, and how these conversations are playing out in the United States, in China, and elsewhere around the world. So with us, we have Martin Chorzempa, a research fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Martin is an expert on financial innovation from his time in Germany as a Fulbright scholar, as a researcher at the Association of German Banks, and Martin has also spent time researching financial, liberal, financial liberalization while in China as a loose scholar at Peking University's China Center for Economic Research and at the China Finance 40 Forum, China's leading independent think tank. We're also joined by Jill Carlson, co-founder of the Open Money Initiative, a nonprofit organization that produces research and insights on how money is managed in places experiencing hyperinflation, capital controls, and the criminalization of free markets. Jill is also a Coindesk columnist and a principal at Slow Ventures, where she manages the blockchain portion of the $220 million fund. And rounding out the panel, we have Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation, who has also served as Vice President of Strategy for the Oslo Freedom Forum. Alex's work on technology and human rights has connected hundreds of dissidents and civil society groups with business leaders, philanthropists, policymakers, and more to further promote free and open societies. So Martin, Jill, and Alex will have us covering plenty of ground in the time that we have. Uh, after each of their presentations, we'll shift over to questions. So just as a reminder, you can submit your questions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube using the hashtag CatoMonCon. And with that, Martin, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Rachel, and thank you to the Cato team for having me today. My remarks are gonna bridge a little bit the previous session on state and market with this on uh, civil liberties, partially because I'm gonna talk about the central bank digital currency in China, which is very much about trading off privacy from the state surveillance versus uh, viewing of your transactions in the private sector. Begin with a quick primer on digital finance in China. Uh, though China has gone a long way towards a market economy from the command economy they had uh, a while ago in the last decades, there still was severe financial repression all the way up until about 2013. There was no competition whatsoever in payments, only one state-owned monopoly controlled all the debit and credit cards, the banks were all state-owned, interest rates are, were set below inflation, ultimately the system was designed to funnel money to the state for development and not really serve average consumers. Then starting in around 2013, two important forms of digital money began to disrupt direct state power over the financial system. One of those is what everyone's familiar with, tech companies that have become major financial contenders in China, becoming one of the greatest forces for liberalization, I would argue, in Chinese people's lives today. They brought competition to the state banks, forced um, more provision of consumer credit, better returns on savings, and more options for people to invest really revolutionized the way China's financial sector functions. And the, but the, at the same time, the reduction of state control has traded off with a, a power to a, a duopoly of tech companies, you know, Ant Group, which is uh, affiliated with uh, Alibaba, sort of like China's Amazon, and uh, Tencent's WeChat, 
which is sort of like Facebook, but these super apps that they've created fuse with Google, Amazon, Facebook, Uber, and uh, many more uh, companies in the United States would have together with, with the kind of data that JP Morgan, PayPal, MasterCard do. These are apps that are more like operating systems than individual uh, apps. And the key is that these companies see so many more facets of the users' lives than, uh, than US companies do, which pose huge concerns for privacy and worries that we have a duopoly that quashes any sort of competition, ultimately might not be that good for innovation. The second form of disruptive technology that's been applied in finance is, uh, has been Bitcoin, which became a huge craze in China around the same time as these tech companies were entering, which is 2013. Both forms of digital finance in China have been increasingly regulated, but the stateless digital currency like Bitcoin and Ethereum and others is especially seen as a major threat to the government, because, especially to capital controls. And that's led China to essentially ban intermediaries like crypto exchanges, they've banned ICOs, and they're saying banks can't touch cryptocurrencies because they don't want to lose that control. Uh, so since they've been able to pretty effectively, I, I would argue, regulate digital currencies in China by sort of banning them, a big question is why is China launching its own state-backed digital currency? In the last uh, session, it was mentioned that China has began, already begun retail pilot uh, project for its central bank uh, digital currency. Ultimately, this is about a reassertion of control over the financial system. The government does not like being caught on the back foot by innovations from abroad, and it wants to be in the, in the driver's seat, uh, sort of driving forward the frontier of financial innovation instead of having to respond and potentially ban things that could be useful. They started serious research into digital currencies starting in 2014 at the central bank with a dedicated team, and then a few years later committed to launching a central bank digital currency. It's probably the most advanced major economy in terms of central bank digital currency development today. Now the question is, is digital currency going to bring us further along the path of liberalization that's been uh, followed over the past seven years? Or are we going to be more back to the past of repression and more government control? Uh, I'm not optimistic that it's going to be the former. So what is China's central bank digital currency? It's a little bit difficult to know uh, exactly what this is going to look like, despite the fact they've already begun trials, because there's no white paper. There's no comprehensive outlining of what they're trying to do. What you have to do, if you want to understand it, is follow all sorts of speeches from the central bank. Uh, from officials at various levels over the last few years, read their speeches and papers, and still you have a lot of unanswered questions. What we do know is that it's going to look like digital cash, but not providing central bank accounts for individuals. Uh, people are going to transact with third-party wallets, uh, which are going to be provided mainly probably by the private sector, but there will also probably be public options. And uh, there's going to be no blockchain involved in this system. The uh, PBOC, the central bank in China, thinks it's too slow. Uh, blockchain is too slow to handle the 300,000 transactions per second that they think they need to have the system. You know, Bitcoin is, is, uh, is kind of like in the single digits, not even, not even close to being able to handle this. Eventually, they do see it replacing all physical cash. But increasingly, they're saying that's going to take a long time. They're trying to you know, tell people, don't freak out. We're not going to eliminate cash immediately. They're also saying that uh, the, the goal of central bank digital currency is not to replace banks. It's not to get in, in between. They're saying it's a two-tier system. The central bank is not going to usurp the role of, uh, of commercial banks. And they've actually said that, uh, that if the central bank replaced deposits with the uh, central bank digital currency, that would bring China back to 1984. And most of you are probably thinking of 1984 in the Orwell context, and that's not terribly far off. 
but they're actually referring to a time when uh, in China, there was only one bank, kind of the central bank and the commercial bank were the same thing. And the government and, and its plan were the ones really allocating credit and liquidity across the economy. They really don't want to go back there. Uh, now I'll, I'll give you a little bit of context of privacy in, in China, which is a really fascinating complex reality today. It's not what you generally read, which is that the government uh, is able to see everything. Chinese people do care about privacy and actually Chinese officials, I would argue, also care about their, their privacy. To understand what I mean, you have to kind of disaggregate the idea of government in China. It's made up of many different bureaucracies with who often squabble uh, amongst each other, just like every government's uh, departments and also localities that, that compete for resources and also individuals who compete for uh, promotions. And there are different factions within government that, that believe different things and are part of different patronage networks. So I would ask a sort of rhetorical question. Do you think that a low level official in, the, say, the Public Security Bureau in, in some far flung province would be able to just log into some system and get access to the WeChat uh, conversation histories or payment records? of Xi Jinping's chief of staff? Uh, definitely not. Well, what about uh, if they're trying to get that data on arrival for a promotion within their bureau? Also probably not. So although there are no independent courts in China that would really provide a check on the government's ability to access data, there is certainly a, a political compromise that had to be reached at some point on, uh, on data access that limits it to you know, very high level, very important demands from the government, not just kind of a some tube that connects all of the data from private companies into the government. And companies often resist data requests in, in China. We've seen this in some public uh, examples like the Ant Group running Alipay, refusing to hand over credit data and also sometimes payments data to the central bank. Uh, how long that lasts is a question, but uh, it's, not, it's not just automatically handed over. And the government is doing things now because there's so much public pressure for better privacy to restrict private firms' uh, access and use of data. Uh, one interesting example in the financial sector is, you know, when Equifax was hacked and lost uh, many, you know, millions of Americans' data, Americans have no ability to say, well, we don't like that you're gathering data on us and generating credit scores, we'd like you to stop. But in China, when Ant Group sort of created a, a clever way of getting people to accidentally opt into its uh, credit scoring service. There was a backlash. Regulators called it into the room and said, you have to, uh, you have to for tell people they need to opt in specifically. You can't just kind of have a checked box for opting out. So at least in this area, uh, Chinese actually have more uh, control over their, how their data is used in the financial sector for financial privacy than Americans do. Uh, moving on to uh, the privacy implications of central bank digital currency. Uh, the, the central bank in China actually is using privacy as, uh, as the main selling point or one of the main selling points of the central bank digital currency, something that would surprise probably a lot of people. Uh, what they've said is uh, the system will have the, what they call controllable anonymity, kukongnimi. And, uh, and in reality, what controllable anonymity means is that the private sector will get access to less data on you. You'll be able to transact digitally uh, instead of having uh, Tencent or Alipay being able to access all your data uh, and also potentially the, the person counterparty you're dealing with able to access your data. Uh, that's not gonna be the case anymore, but uh, the, there are probably going to be very few guardrails on what the government can get access to. So essentially you'll be trading off uh, government uh, surveillance for, uh, for private sector surveillance. 
That's because the central bank says it's going to centrally control the ledger, which uh, keeps record of all transactions and uh, the wallet balances as well. And uh, but, but a question really is whether other government bureaucracies will be okay with the central bank having this kind of unfettered access to the, to the data system. So the vice governor of the central bank, who's in charge of the central bank digital currency project, has said that the PBSC will, quote, grasp the entirety of information so it can employ big data, AI, and other technology to analyze transaction data and money flows, and one of, uh, end quote, and one of the other former senior officials has said the PBOC will have all data, including uh, the identity of transactors. I really think there's going to be serious bureaucratic uh, resistance to this idea because it would raise the prominence of the PBOC and other regulators and potentially some politicians who uh, are often maybe on the different ideological side of the central bank in some debates will resist this. Uh, one, one way I can imagine it working in a way that better protects privacy Kind of relies on on the, the way that Bitcoin and Coinbase work at the moment. You could imagine a PBOC system where what they see is equivalent to what everyone can see in the Bitcoin blockchain, where there are pseudonymous records of who owns what and, and the transactions, um, but also existing something like uh, a Coinbase, where maybe the Alipay digital wallet uh, is there and it has its own wallet with the central bank but then individuals can sort of have sub wallets underneath that and transact amongst each other without necessarily creating a record which is sent to the equivalent of the blockchain uh, in Bitcoin, which in the PBOC case would be you know, the ledger that it controls. That would allow for some degree of, uh, of transactions without the central bank seeing everything. Uh, the central bank has also talked about uh, having uh, small transactions possible where you're not required to identify yourself or even report the transaction to the internet. Uh, it's still an open question how exactly that will work. But we still have to consider the real possibility that the, the government will have a God's eye view of the system, will see every transaction and ultimately eliminate cash, which would be obviously very concerning for civil liberties. Uh, one other element of this that, that people have speculated about is whether they'll be adding things like smart contracts, which would allow them to control the financial system in a new way. I don't see this happening in the near term because the officials have said they would need to change the definition of money in the central bank law that would allow them to add functionality to money. Otherwise, they feel like they would be in legal, uh, unclear zone, which even in China is important. And they recently proposed an amendment to the central bank law to allow recognition of the digital currency, but did not include anything like uh, anything here. So. Uh, few implications uh, of, of this. One is that uh, there's already a big problem in China of tying money uh, into these digital ecosystems. People in China worry that if they share the wrong article on, on WeChat, their uh, account and money in the wallet might disappear, ending access to a key system and losing their money. And But this all could get much worse. I'll end on uh, one, a brief note on whether I think this uh, central bank digital currency in China is likely to go international. I think the more that this currency is surveilled and controlled, the less likely it is that other countries will feel okay having their citizens transact in it. Uh, it may be that this ends up being an inspiration to uh, autocratic governments around the world where they say we would like to have a similar level of control and surveillance, uh, but, uh, but that's, that's a bit speculative. Uh, right now, I see there's no reason to rush the development of central bank digital currencies, and I think that the US really has it right by, uh, by saying, we're not going to be the first, but we're going to do it right. Thank you.
Martin, thanks so much. You gave us a lot to think about and ask about, but before that, why don't we turn it over to Jill? Great, thank you so much. Um, well, if Martin just uh, gave us a, a fascinating discussion on how digital currencies can be used to potentially infringe upon financial rights, I'll share sort of the other side of the coin there, uh, a, a little bit on how other types of digital currencies, namely cryptocurrencies, can actually be used to defend some of those liberties. Um, and so first, you know, I'd like to just sort of propose and establish that there is in fact such a thing as fundamental uh, financial and economic human rights. And of course, we can find grounding for this notion in the work of John Locke in our own Declaration of Independence, uh, or even in the UN Declaration on Human Rights. These are all kind of references to property rights and possessions and even the pursuit of happiness. But what I'm talking about is something a little bit different, something that, you know, if you're here in attendance today, I'm, I'm guessing that you already agree with this which is that there's this notion of the right to access a free, open, and functioning financial system as well. And yet all around the world, including here at home in the United States, we see governments and central banks violating this right. I'm talking about inflation, I'm talking about capital controls, confiscation, price controls, rationing, bank withdrawal limits, cash shortages, liquidity crises, all of these things infringe upon a person's ability to have a healthy, functioning financial life. Now, perhaps nowhere in the world have all of these phenomena that I just listed manifested so clearly as they have over the last decade in Venezuela. Rampant government spending there due to the socialist policies that they have in place led to an economic dependency on oil. The oil price route of the last half decade, combined with an election, rampant corruption, prolonged geopolitical tensions with otherwise would-be trading partners for them, this has all resulted in deep economic trauma and isolation for the country. The government's responses to these situations have led to, again, many of those phenomena that I just described as infringing upon their people's fundamental financial rights. It's led to hyperinflation, uh, over a million percent inflation uh, annually in, in the country. Um, it's led to capital controls, confiscation of assets, price controls, again, rationing, debt default, just about every possible breach of economic and monetary freedom that could happen has occurred in the last decade in Venezuela. And yet, I would also argue that Venezuela is a great example of how people employ the creativity of the human mind and also employ technology to overcome all of these things. And to me, this is proof actually that there is indeed a necessity around having access to a free and open financial system to survive and thrive. And so today I wanna to talk a little bit more about the methods that people use to overcome this repression of their financial freedoms and the ways that those, those methods manifest. And I'm gonna break it down into three categories, tunnels, bunkers, and exits. And so to, to tackle the first one here briefly, tunnels. If we think about financial systems in general in the world, we'll find that they're extremely siloed. You know, often we can think about the difficulties of transferring money from one country to another, even again, in a relatively free and open financial system, there are frictions in place there. 
Um, you know, generally these frictions are overcome by things like the correspondent banking systems, uh, by, you know, legal frameworks and compliance rules that can actually speak to and interact with one another. But sometimes we see these things break down. Um, and that happens in almost kind of a fractal way. It happens at the nation state level. It happens between institutions within a given country. And then, of course, it even happens amongst individuals. And so at the nation state level, we can think of silos existing when sanctions are put in place. Um, we can think of silos existing, uh, you know, when two countries refuse to trade with one another, you know, there's, there's all types of ways that, that things break down there. Um, between institutions, we can think about all of the frictions that might exist in a, a, a banking system that has experienced a liquidity shock or trauma or, or what have you, where the banks effectively shut or shut their doors, where there are cash withdrawal limits, um, or where banks, because of their need to meet their own liquidity demands, uh, are no longer transferring money in and out to each other. And then again, of course, we can think of the violation of the rights between individuals to even communicate, which is, of course, kind of the bedrock of being able to then transact. And again, Venezuela is a prime example of, of all three of these things. But again, in a place like that and places around the world experiencing this type of very extreme siloing of their financial system, we also see people tunneling into each other. And that's what I mean by tunnels. There are ways that people have come up with to be able to dig through from one silo to another. Now, historically, people have done this via things like offshore accounts um, and, and by using their sort of privilege of wealth and connections and so forth to, to be able to effectively execute on a regulatory arbitrage. Now, what I'd like to propose, and you'll see this as kind of a running theme across the other two methods that I'll mention as well, is that there are new ways now that have democratized access and ability to tunnel that have been enabled fundamentally by digital currency and by technology. And so, you know, we can look at a, a currency like Bitcoin um, and the technologies around it and see how it's enabled for the first time, you know, more of the average person to be able to build this type of tunnel into and out of a system in which they might be trapped. Um, and we see people doing this in Venezuela very specifically uh, using a system called local Bitcoins, and there are many other competitors and, and similar systems, uh, wherein people are building tunnels in and out of the country effectively, um, you know, in order to receive remittances from friends and family who have left, uh, in order to manage finances across border, all using, again, you know, specifically this, uh, this system called local Bitcoins, uh, and then also, of course, using the underlying currency of Bitcoin, which can transcend borders in a way that, of course, you know, money held in a bank account in Venezuela cannot. Um, and so that's the first way, right, that people are fighting for these economic and financial freedoms is by building tunnels. The second way that people are going about this battle is by building and finding bunkers. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You know, in many of these situations, assets are insecure and they can be insecure in many ways. They can be insecure because of inflation, because there is erosion of value happening, uh, because there's volatility, debasement occurring, uh, but they can also be insecure because of issues of confiscation and expropriation. And so 
you know, as with tunnels, when we look at and think about bunkers, i.e. sort of safe havens where people can go to and turn to in order to safeguard their wealth, there have long been ways available to the wealthy and the privileged and the elite and government officials. You know, Martin, I love that you touched upon that uh, aspect of it. The government is, of course, comprised of individuals, government officials to be able to find these bunkers, whether it's through investing in real estate, again, getting money offshore and into other currencies where the value is not eroding into commodities, um, getting money offshore and into places where it's not going to be subject to confiscation as well. And so, you know, we see that that sort of the upper class of society has always been able to find a bunker for their assets in these situations to keep them secure. Now, again, Bitcoin and related technologies have actually democratized access to these bunkers in many ways, where suddenly all you need is a mobile phone and an internet connection. Um, and then, you know, to go on to a service like local Bitcoins or another exchange or marketplace uh, in order to swap your money, swap your local currency into Bitcoin, therein protecting both the value of it from inflation as effectively an inflation hedge, one that comes at a much cheaper cost uh, than trying to, to get into real estate um, or, or similar, um, and one that's much more available. Uh, than, than uh, you know, even having to go out and buy, buy goods, which is something that historically those who haven't had access to the other methods that I mentioned have done. People would go out and buy eggs or sugar or flour, things that, that they think would keep and therefore keep the value of their, their net worth uh, as kind of a hedge to inflation. But all of that, of course, is subject to confiscation. It's, um, you know, in, in Venezuela specifically to speak there again, it's actually illegal to, to hoard these goods. And so Bitcoin, again, being a, a digital money uh, that one can store in the safety of a cell phone um, is, is really doing a lot to open the doors to, to more bunkers uh, for more of the population to be able to secure and safeguard their wealth. And the final thing that I'll touch on is, is the notion of exit. And so we have tunnels, you know, ways of people uh, being able to move their wealth around in an otherwise closed financial system. We have bunkers, ways of people being able to safeguard their wealth in an otherwise eroding financial system. And then finally, we have escape hatches. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's important to recognize that there are situations in which the right to a free, open, functional financial system is so deeply and routinely violated by the government and by the central banks that there is no choice other than to emigrate. Um, you know, these are situations where tunnels and bunkers are just insufficient over the long term. And it's worth noting, one can't really live in a bunker. You know, you can't have all of your money in in Bitcoin all the time or in in physical goods all the time because you still have to interact with the crumbling society around you. And so it's no wonder then that, you know, if we return to our case study of Venezuela in the three years between 2016 and 2019, over 4.6 million people left Venezuela out of a population of 30 million. Um, but then the question arises of how do those people take their assets along? And again, until very recently, with the advent of Bitcoin and digital currencies, it was very, very difficult and prohibitive and costly for people to be able to do so. And so I'll wrap up here um, and just say that, you know, I think that 
this framework of having tunnels, bunkers, and escape hatches, I hope can be helpful as we think about uh, these fundamental financial rights. Um, and you know that I'm not talking about anything necessarily new here. It's not specific to economic and monetary policy. Uh, you know, we've been seeing people for millennia use these things to fight for their rights. I think that the difference here is again talking about financial freedoms and recognizing the ways in which technology and specifically digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, are helping in waging that war. Thank you. Jill, thank you so much. And now we'll turn it over to Alex before shifting to Q&A. Go ahead, Alex. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Um, I, I wanted to talk about financial freedom and privacy in the post-cash era. We've got some great commentary so far from Martin and Jill. I just want to dive in and look at the social function of cash. I think cash is very important um, for human society in, in the modern age. And it serves really three key purposes savings, privacy, and small payments. I mean, uh, perhaps in advanced economies, people make fun of the idea of putting uh, cash under their mattress, but I can assure you that this is very, very popular around the world, especially in countries that have terrible currencies that collapse and that are devalued by their governments um, in places ranging from uh, Russia to, to Zimbabwe to, of course, Venezuela, uh, people have saved uh, historically uh, with paper money, with banknotes. And it's a way of taking your money out of the financial system. And it's been a very important way for people to save their time and energy. Uh, second, obviously, being privacy. When you make a transaction with cash, with a banknote or a coin, uh, obviously, the merchant doesn't know anything about you. Uh, there's no, no information collected and you know, sold off or vacuumed up to third parties or governments. You can even make anonymous uh, you know, uh, payments with cash, for example, donation to a church box, things like that. And then, of course, small payments uh, have been, you know, were very dominant for a long time. But obviously, as we all know, cash's role is being phased out. Um, anyone listening here probably does not use cash for all of their daily purchases anymore, probably doesn't use banknotes to save in their house, um, and, and, and you know, probably doesn't think too hard about what they give up when they make purchases. So with that background, I wanted to talk about the two potential heirs to cash that I've examined, um, two potential technologies that, that could in the digital age replace the social function of banknotes. And one is the central bank digital currency, which Martin spoke about, obviously, in the DCEP implementation in China, and one is Bitcoin. And I think the important backdrop here is that, as Jill mentioned, there's increasing financial surveillance around the world. Obviously, in dictatorships, there, there are no rules or laws for people to hold their government accountable. They can't write op-eds in, in an independent newspaper in China. They can't sue the government um, in Saudi Arabia. They can't organize a peaceful protest in Russia without fear of being you know, disappeared. So there's very little that people in dictatorships can do um, to push back against like laws if they wanna seek reform. And it's important to note that more than 4 billion people around the world live under authoritarian governments. We're talking majority of the world's population here in 95 countries. So for them, you know, seeking some sort of, uh, you know, financial privacy through law is not an option. Now, maybe it is in the United States or in Europe or Japan, et cetera. But even here in these countries, we're having a really hard time preserving any sort of financial privacy. If you look at the Bank Secrecy Act, which continues to um, get tighter and tighter and tighter around people, uh, you know, companies have to give up to the government all kinds of information about their customers. And if you read these if you read the Supreme Court case in the 70s, which which constitutionally, you know, approved 
the BSA, the dissents from the justices who opposed the BSA were quite eloquent at the time. And they said, look, this is, this is going to lead to a huge amount of loss of privacy for Americans. And they didn't even really have digital money back then. So it's amazing that this thing continues to be the norm. And now we're getting increasing intrusions like the travel rule, which says that, you know, for payments of even small amounts low, as low as $250, institutions are going to have to share information about customers. So you're watching the creation of a huge financial dragnet, even in democracies. Um, and, you know, this is hand in hand with the rise of fintech. Again, as I spoke about, the average payment you make is not done with banknotes. It's not done with a central bank liability. It's done with a, a, a shifting corporate, you know, let, uh, you know, a ledger on a corporate balance sheet back and forth. So whether it's Apple Pay or, or Alipay, et cetera, um, most people are using fintech to, to do their payments in, in their life. So of course, as Martin mentioned, central banks are worried about this. They, they, they don't want to, especially ones in authoritarian regimes, they don't want to give too much to the private sector in terms of control. So out of the two liabilities that they have, central banks, you know, obviously bank reserves being one, the other one is banknotes. And what are they going to do? Well, they're going to try and digitize those, right? And I think what he, what Martin spoke about in terms of their goal of controllable anonymity is very important. Um, you know, central banks, even in Canada, United States, Europe, they're speaking about this balance, about they're going to have, uh, you know, a balance. We're going to protect privacy, but, you know, still we need to catch criminals, right? So at the end of the day, all these CBDCs are going to have backdoors. The governments are going to make sure that there's a backdoor in, in some way. And maybe that looks like what Martin said in China, where basically people are going to be trading off governments knowing more about them to the government knowing more about them. And in dictatorships, that's a terrible trade-off. I mean, the Chinese government is literally committing a genocide right now uh, in Xinjiang. I mean, again, you know, where they have millions of people locked up in prison camps. So it's an unequivocally bad trade-off to make to give the government in dictatorships more power. And I, I would say it's pretty blurry too, and even in democracies. Um, CBDCs will be tools of surveillance and control, um, I have no doubt. So, you know, if we, you know, maybe there are public money advocates in Canada, in the United States that think that they can push the government to make a CBDC that protects privacy. I would say the odds of that are very small. Maybe they're possible, but remember, that's not a possibility for people who live under dictatorships. It's just not happening. And if we can't rely on governments to take the social role of cash, which again, as I covered, is so important and extend it to the digital realm, then what are we to do? Well, we can look at the history of the cypherpunks. So the cypherpunks obviously were a group of people who ended up creating uh, and popularizing public key encryption and allowing us to trade secret messages on the internet, which is now very popular in the world today. So much so that even the people who used to run the NSA at the United States, uh, you know, are telling Americans that they should have the right to have encryption. So much so that the Biden campaign just used Signal, an encrypted messaging app, uh, you know, during its entire campaign. So encryption has become normalized, even though it's quite radical. It allows citizens to do things that the government don't know about. So the sort of holy grail of the cypherpunks was, was private cash, was digital cash, right? And that, I would argue, is has been created in the form of Bitcoin, which is open source money. Obviously, Bitcoin's been very impressive, uh, especially lately. Um, but we have to think carefully about can it replace digital, can it be digital cash? And if we go back to the three things that cash does, I would say the jury's still out. So number one, on savings, I would actually argue that Bitcoin is, is far better than banknotes. Obviously, it can teleport globally, as Jill was talking about, people use it to tunnel, people use it as a bridge between monies, but also it, it cannot be devalued. So even if you took your cash out of the ATM, the government could still obviously devalue the currency and you had no control over that and your time and energy is now worth less because of someone else's decision. Not the case with Bitcoin. Its issuance is uh, algorithmically programmed and there will be no more than 21 million Bitcoin ever. 
Um, however, on privacy, Bitcoin has a long way to go. Obviously, as Martin mentioned, there's a, a blockchain that people can examine. And if you've bought your Bitcoin on a third party exchange like Coinbase, Coinbase knows what address is yours and, and they, can, they can see where things are going. Thankfully, there's a lot of technology happening now, including a big upgrade to Bitcoin, which is about which is going to go through in the next year, which will make surveilling Bitcoin very, very difficult. So from a civil liberties perspective, that's a plus, but we are still a long way to go. Small payments is going to be the hardest feature of digital cash for Bitcoin to approximate because it requires consumer and merchant acceptance. And we just don't know if that's going to happen. But at least there's a chance. And just to conclude, I mean, again, jury's out on whether Bitcoin can fulfill these roles and help people in the future. But I can assure you that CBDCs will, will not help people save because governments will be able to devalue that currency easily, even introducing negative interest rate policies and basically forcing people to pay to save. It, it will certainly not provide privacy. But yes, it will give you the convenience of those small payments that we're so used to. So people will be making a big trade off. So at the end of the day, especially for people who live under dictatorships, um, at least they have a hope that maybe in the future they can still have financial freedom and privacy through something like Bitcoin, which is open source money. Thank you, Alex, and thank you to everyone who gave their presentations. We've got a little under 10 minutes left, and so we might as well dig right into questions. Uh, before I get into that, just one more reminder that if you do have a question and you're watching, you can submit on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube uh, with the hashtag CatoMonCon. So I think this is a question that you actually, all three of you could speak to, um, thinking about how policymakers can ensure that CBDCs and private digital currencies you know, are, are mindful of the exact risks that all of you just laid out. So maybe to put it in the words of Jake, who sent in a question from YouTube, can governments be trusted with digital currencies and what types of rules and legislation would be needed to create adequate checks and balances? Uh, should we go backwards? Alex, would you wanna take this one first? Yeah, I mean, basically dictatorships cannot be trusted. And democracies can maybe be trusted, but it requires huge, you know, huge diligence from the population, lobbying efforts, campaigns. I mean, Americans have been either unaware of or unwilling to push back against the Bank Secrecy Act for decades. Um, so I don't have, there's not a whole lot of evidence that suggests that Democrat people, even in open societies, can push back against uh, financial surveillance and control, while there's certainly empirical evidence that shows us that it's not possible in, in dictatorships. Jill, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that I I would not depend on the government to do the right thing here, regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of your jurisdiction. I think that, you know, sort of to, to the point of, of my conversation earlier, I think that we have to instead depend on sort of technologies and creativity to safeguard those rights. Martin? Yeah, I, I think... Um, uh, one of the ways to do it is really trying to make sure there's some friction in uh, in data access. So that might be something like requiring you to someone to go to court to uh, to and you know independent courts that that restrict the access. You don't want a system which is going to provide you know a centrally controlled ledger where all of the identity data and the transaction data are put together. Um, in some places, that's going to be possible. I think the you know ever as Alex mentioned. Everybody's talking about the trade-off uh, of privacy and, you know, and and KYC, and, and ultimately there is going to be some. That we, what we can hope for maybe is that a similar kind of um, or a similar, or hopefully better kind of system that provides frictions for government access to data 
will uh, will be able to exist under a, a CBDC as well, maybe something not looking like the, the Chinese system. Thank you. You know, we had a question from Joel that I think Alex, maybe you could take first and then we could also go around. So Joel expressed a concern that Bitcoin's digital nature exposes it to too many quote unquote weak points uh, compared to gold, which for example, could be hidden underground. Do you worry that digital currencies are overexposed? Uh, I would actually argue that Bitcoin is infinitely more seizure, seizure resistant than gold. I mean, if I had gold in my house, some jackbooted thugs could come over and rip my house, house apart and find it. I mean, Bitcoin, your seed phrase to your wealth can be stored on a piece of paper, on a piece of metal, on a USB stick, and you can even memorize it in your head. So I would say that, uh, you know, generally speaking, Bitcoin is much more seizure resistant and way less attack prone than gold, which can literally be just stolen from you by someone with violence. Martin or Jill, do you have anything to add? Um, yeah, so I, I, I think um, um, yeah, I, I generally agree with Alex. I would say that jackbooted people can put a knife to your throat and make you open up your vault and pull out your sheet of paper or like produce your uh, produce your your um, your passphrase. But generally, I think it's much more robust and it's shown extreme uh, ability to to withstand even a few uh, potentially fatal flaws in the code. Really, where where the system is vulnerable is in the intermediary stages that actually make it possible for people to uh, interact with the system. I will admit that I saved my seed phrase on a, with a screenshot. And at one point I culled my, uh, my iPhotos and it's gone. So I've lost like uh, lost a certain amount of, of money in Bitcoin. So I'm, I'm kind of a fan of these intermediaries that uh, sometimes surveil you, but uh, at least can recover your password, <laughs> but does not exist in Bitcoin. Jill, do you want to take yeah, the only thing I would add is, you know, not only is it, I think, uh, as Alex said, more seizure resistant than the likes of gold, it's also way more accessible, right? You know, most people, at least in the United States, if they do have some exposure to gold as, you know, an inflation hedge, they're doing it via the gold ETF. Very few people have access to go out and buy gold in any kind of meaningful quantity and keep gold bars in a safe and secure location. Bitcoin is completely different. Just to add one more piece, uh, Bitcoin is programmable. So for example, you can have multi-signature wallets uh, with Bitcoin. So even if a guy comes up to you with a knife, uh, he's not getting your Bitcoin unless he gets the other two, you know, let's say you have a three of five key arrangement uh, and you're, you've distributed amongst your family or your business partners. Uh, even if someone comes up to you and tortures or kills you, they're not getting your Bitcoin unless they have the two other signatures as well. So again, it's like much, much more seizure resistant. And this might be one last question to write us into the last couple of minutes that I think we can go around um, and answer as well. So thinking about the right to privacy, um, you know, would a switch to electronic alternatives that allowed governments to track transactions violate that right in the first place? You know, do, does the implied right to privacy oblige governments to supply an anonymous payment media uh, or allow, you know, private sector suppliers to, to fill in there? Uh, and why don't we maybe go back around, Martin? Would you want to lead us off there? Yeah, I. Um, so I, I think that uh, if if governments invented cash today, uh, as they are reinventing cash in the digital form, they would not create it uh, anonymous. I, I do think that uh, you know there's reason to be suspicious of these things, but uh, but considering that you know there's uh, as as Alex mentioned about about gold, you know, and uh, and Jill as well. 
or gold, or even applies the same way to physical banknotes. You actually have to physically be there and move these things. Whereas uh, if it's an online system, you might be able to register with bots, you know, like an, an immense amount of wallets, which you can then use to transact, uh, you know, in a criminal network and all underneath some sort of artificial threshold. So, so I, I do think that in the digital realm, it's harder to argue uh, the, the trade-off uh, between, you know, controlling crime and, and, and privacy is a little bit harder to manage than it is in cash where there are like these friction points of actually having to physically be there and, uh, and get access to cash. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I mean, what comes to mind for me when I hear this question is KYC and AML. So know your customer and anti-money laundering rules. And this is perhaps one of my more controversial beliefs, but I... I don't necessarily think that KYC and AML are in the way that they're implemented today anyway, good things. Um, and again, that's controversial because it sounds like, well, then do you support you know, criminals and terrorists and money launderers? No, of course not. But it's important to remember that these regulations as they exist today really only came about in the last few decades. You know, Really 9-11 was a huge catalyst uh, for implementing them in the way that they have been. And I don't think that there has been proper thought given to the trade-offs that they make when it comes to privacy and civil liberties and so forth uh, amongst the government. And I have to say, I'm not I'm not an optimist in terms of any of this getting rolled back. I think that once you once you implement these things, it's very hard to turn back the clock on it. But I, I do think it's worth giving thought to. Alex, you've got the last word here. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know should governments make this for the people? Of course, will they? Like, again, highly unlikely just based on, on, on history and the trends Jill just mentioned. Uh, and that's why ultimately the cypherpunks, you know, decided to publish this open source code in the 1970s, 80s and 90s and popularize it so that people could keep secrets with each other. The NSA tried to stop the publication uh, of the academic paper behind the public key cryptography from out of Stanford in the 1970s. But guess what? They failed because code is unstoppable. And that's what you're seeing now with Bitcoin as well. And again, um, in a situation where maybe we cannot convince our governments to protect our rights, uh, maybe we can rely on, on code to protect it uh, for us. And that does give me some hope. Thanks for, we'll end on a, a note of hope then. And uh, thanks to all three of you for joining us. Thanks to Cato for hosting. Uh, from here, we'll take a 15 minute break in the program and then come back for a keynote address with Caitlin Long, founder and CEO of Avanti Financial Group. Uh, Caitlin will be talking about 10 stablecoin predictions and their implications for monetary policy. But with that, thanks for everyone for joining us and for those who sent in their questions. Have a good one. <laughs>